coming and sharing. It's good to have them here with us. Um, we were just talking before the service. The last time they were here was 2018. So it's been five years since Carlos and Anita have been here. So I actually just got to meet them for the first time this morning. So thank you all for sharing just what God has done and what just we are going to continue to ask for in prayer for you all and the people of Erebu. Um, we're going to go ahead and take a, a shift here. Go ahead and open up your uh, scriptures with me to Psalm 19, if you have your Bible. Um, it is also in your worship guide. Specifically, we're going to be in verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. As you turn there, um, I thought it would be fun this morning to have a little audience participation. Um, if you've heard me speak before, you know I like to get the crowd involved a little bit. So um, I thought it would be fun to talk about some of my favorite sweet places throughout Johnson City. Emphasis on the sweet. Um, so audience participation is welcome here. If you agree with any of these pictures that I'm going to show, you can raise your hand. I love that. Shout amen. Something, right? Um, to say, I am with you, Jeremiah. I love these sweet items as well. So just know, with all these things, if you show up at the Redstone office one day with one of these items, McKibben, I'm going to love you forever, man. I'm going to love you forever. All right, here we go. Coming in strong with his first one, Annie Ruth's Donuts. Anybody? Yes. Love them. The glaze dripping down is delicious, right? <laughs> yes. Um, they will be opening up a storefront one mile from my house, which is dangerous. But man, I'm excited for that. All right, here we go. Pal's Frenchie fries with a peachy tea light ice, anyone? Yes. Um, I will say if you don't inhale these in the first 90 seconds, they're not very good, but they got the seasoning right on these Pal's Frenchie fries. Um, next up, we've got, before they uh, close down, a scratch pizza. Yeah, I know. Everyone's giving an audible awe, right? This was delicious wood-fired brick oven pizza from scratch. A whipped cream cookie from the cookie crate. Anyone have one of these? Thank you, Karen. If you've never had one, please do yourself a favor. Get a dozen of these at least. Um, lastly, a slice of hummingbird cake from Mad Greek. Yes. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Alice's. Y'all are with me. It is absolutely delicious. So notice all of these items that I just mentioned to you um, don't have the greatest nutritional value, right? What I mentioned was cake, cookies, pizza, donuts, and french fries. <laughs> but what do they do? They taste really, really, really good, don't they? There's an emotion that is evoked when we talk about good food, isn't there? If you're like me, you get this really goofy smile on your face. Your inflection changes a bit. Emphasis is added to your words. We recommend it to friends and to family. We post about it on social media. Why? Well, because we found that thing to be sweet. We found it to be desirable. We consumed it. We loved it. And we kept wanting to go back for more and more and more. So how does the same taste on our tongue translate to the scriptures? When you think about engaging with God's word, do these words ever come to mind? Sweet. Desirable. Barna Research did a study two years ago on Bible use frequency among U.S. adults. Um, you may or may not be able to see this in the photo, but I'll be happy to explain it. Um, if you combine some of these percentages, just over half 
excuse me, just over one-third of U.S. adults read the Bible once a week or more, while half read the Bible less than twice a year. So overall, they found that only one in six U.S. adults read the Bible most days during the week. This is just two years ago. So there's many reasons why this might be true. We've got reasons why I'm too busy. The Bible isn't relevant to my life. I think it's boring. I have doubts about the Bible. I don't know how to read it or study it. We could come up with 50 more reasons why we, we as a people, we as a country, do not associate or engage with the Bible. But beyond all of those reasons, I want to frame our time together a little differently with this question. This is going to set a framework for where we're going this morning. Do you see God's word as sweet? Do you see God's word as desirable? Howard Hendricks in his book, Living by the Book, said when it comes to Christians engaging the Bible, we can often view it in three ways. Check this out. He says we can kind of view it like NyQuil. It's nasty, but you know you need it. So you just gulp it down, you consume it, because you know it will help you. Or maybe you see the Bible like shredded wheat. It's nourishing, but it's kind of dry. Like, can we get something a little more exciting? Or maybe you see it like berries and cream. It is so good, and it is so sweet, and you just want to keep going back for it more and more and more. What about you? Do you see God's word as sweet? Do you see God's word as desirable? Now, before I walk through this passage verse by verse, I want to give the main point of my sermon this morning, and it's this. The sweetness of God's word creates within us a desire to know him by engaging it continually. The sweetness of God's word creates within us a desire to know him by engaging it continually. So if you uh, don't have your Bible open to Psalm 19, turn there with me. Uh, For just a moment, I want to address the the structure of this passage. Um, If you were to break down Psalm 19 in its entirety, you would see three distinct sections. Verses 1 through 6, we see God's natural or general revelation. So David's speaking about the heavens, how they declare the glory of God, how the sky proclaims his handiwork. He's proclaiming the reality that God is the maker of all things. God is sovereign over all creation. He has total control throughout the world. If we had time, I would just hang out here for a really, really long time and just camp out and just bask in the fact that God has chosen to reveal himself through his creation. So that's verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 11 can be defined as special revelation. So the emphasis here is on God's laws. You see the phrase, of the Lord, it's repeated six times in just four verses. So David wants us to remember that we are reading the very words of God. And then verses 12 through 14 can be defined as a response to God's word. So jump back with me to verse 7, if you will. Here's what we're going to see in these verses. I'm going to get a bit technical here for a moment, but I think it's going to really help us set up where we're going. Again, keep the main point before you as we read through these passages. The sweetness of God's word creates within us a desire to know him 
by engaging it continually. So pay attention to the way that David describes God's word and then the effects it has on his life. Here's what he says. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord, that's the descriptive title, is perfect. That's the attribute, reviving the soul. That's the effect. So the structure here reveals an emphasis. The law of the Lord is what? It is perfect. There's no flaw in it whatsoever. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the Hebrew word used for law is Torah, which refers to the Old Testament law, encompassing the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. And so for the Israelites in an early Jewish culture, the Pentateuch was vital for understanding the who, what, and why, and how of serving God. And so young men in Jewish uh, tradition, they were expected to memorize the Pentateuch as part of their education, meaning that David, who wrote this psalm, a young Jewish boy, would have been well-versed in the Torah. And as David writes Psalm 19, how does he describe the law? He says that it's perfect. And not only that, but he said it revives his soul. The word reviving here is the same word as restores in Psalm 23. The basic idea is to bring back to life, to preserve, to let live, to refresh. Think about that. David is saying God's law is perfect and it gives me life. It's not like cough medicine. It's not like shredded wheat and it's better than berries and cream, right? The law of the Lord revives the soul. In his word, our souls are awakened. It's as if David is holding up a precious diamond and he's turning it six different ways, expressing the brilliance of each facet. How do we see the scriptures? According to David... According to God's word, it's perfect. It revives our souls. The rest of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The NIV translation says, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. God's word can be trusted. It's a sure foundation that we can stand upon. It proves to make us wise. Isn't that amazing? If we will read... If we will study, if we will open and engage with God's word, it promises, promises us to make us wise. Now I want you to take a step back and just read all that we have just looked at. The law of the Lord, it's perfect. It revives our soul. It is sure or trustworthy and it makes us wise. Now I want you to compare what we've just read to outside sources. So anything but the word of God. So this could be your favorite author, your favorite podcast, professor, theologian. And I want you to ask the question, who or what can compare with the word of God? Who or what can compare with the word of God? What else can we turn to that is perfect, that revives and restores our soul 
What else is trustworthy and can make us wise? And this should go out without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. What is the Bible, or better question, who is the Bible about? Is it about us? Is it, are we the primary focus of the scriptures? Do we engage primarily with God's word so that we can know which car to buy or which job to take in the future? No. We engage God's word because we see him in the scriptures. He is the focus. And so when we read that God's law is perfect, it's because he is perfect. When we read that his word revives and it restores our soul, it's because God revives and restores our soul. He's the one that makes us wise. Who could compare? What could compare than the very words of God? John Piper said it this way. He said, newspapers, magazines, novels, textbooks, books on psychology or theology, radio, nothing can have the good effects on us that the scriptures have because these things are always the word of man. But the scriptures are the word of God. God understands you better than anyone else. He knows how people get to be the way that they are, how they're affected by their surroundings. God understands society and groups perfectly. God knows all facts about how the world works. God knows the future and how everything will come out in the end. God is wiser than any wise writer. God is more caring than any counselor. God is more creative than any poet or artist. It simply stands to reason that what God says will be more useful to us than what anyone else in the universe has to say. Not to sit at his feet and soak our minds with his wisdom is sheer craziness. Let me ask you again. Who or what can compare with the very words of God? Verse 8 and 9. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I'd love to ask you an introspective question here. When was the last time you were reading scripture and you just started smiling? When was the last time that your heart was warmed and God's word made you glad? When was the last time you rejoiced while reading that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That you are more than a conqueror through him who loved us. That there's absolutely nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The precepts of the Lord are right. And what do they do? They rejoice our heart. Amen? One John Piper kick this morning. He gave this illustration once. He asked, have you ever sat next to a brother or a sister 
while they're on their brother and sister in Christ, while they're on their deathbed. He said, now I want you to picture in their final moments of life, can you imagine this brother or sister in Christ on their deathbed saying this, before I take my last few breaths, can you please remind me of the numbers in my savings account? How many, how many zeros were there again? Or please, would you just show me my portfolio one last time? That would be absurd, right? No one would do that. But what you can imagine them doing in their final moments of life is whispering to you, read to me Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Read to me Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Read to me Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Who or what could compare with the very words of God? Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Um, so in reference to God's word, David is saying, this is to be the longing of our hearts, Gold had tremendous value in biblical times. It was known for being high quality, precious, pure, and, and desired. And so to obtain it as a possession would have been a really, really big deal. And so how do we respond to God's word? Well, according to David, we long for it. We see it. We treasure it. We value it for what it truly is. And so what does desire look like throughout the scriptures well, desire looks like thirst. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Desire and longing looks like seeing the scriptures as more valuable than anything else in this world. Psalm 119 says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Desire and longing looks like believing that the scriptures alone sustain and give us life. Matthew 4 says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. That's what desire looks like. That's what longing looks like. Do you have that this morning? Do you have a desire and a longing for the very words of God? Verse 10. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Um, as many of you know, I have two small children. Uh, Nora is three and a half. June is 14 months. Um, if you have small children in your life, uh, you understand the scenario that I'm about to paint for you. Um, particularly how much physical attention really little ones need at the dinner table, right? So you're constantly breaking up food, making sure they're not choking on their food, um, cutting them up into little pieces, wiping off their hands, their mouth. Um, They're grabbing uh, your food off of your plate as if the same exact thing is not on their plate, right? You get the picture if you've got little ones in your life. And I've just found myself doing something recently that caught my attention, when I don't have the kids around me vying for my attention and I have the space to eat slowly and just enjoy my food, I'll close my eyes and I will chew slowly in the peace of that moment. And y'all are like, dude, you're ridiculous. You are so boring. This is your life. And you're exactly right. This is my life. But rather than just inhaling my food to move to the next thing, I'm taking my time to savor the flavor and the texture and to bask in the goodness of those bites. I'm delighting in what I'm consuming. In biblical times, a child would begin schooling around the age of six years old. Their education specifically, teaching them the Old Testament, uh, was of really, really high importance. So they prided themselves on their educational system. And so this level of schooling, it began at the age of six years old, and they called it Bet Sefer, which means house of the book. And often the rabbi who would teach the school children, he would provide an object lesson for them. And on the children's first day of school, they would each receive a small slate where they would learn how to read and how to write. The rabbi, he would pour honey on each child's slate and honey would just drip down this slate and they would just watch this happen before their eyes. Honey is mentioned 56 times in the Bible and it was often viewed as a sign of God's favor. But more, more pertinent to even the word this morning is that it represented God's word. And so the rabbi, he would pour honey on each child's slate and he would have the children run their fingers across the slate. And they would have honey dripping on their fingers and he would have them taste the honey slowly. And the honey was incredibly sweet and it reminded them there was nothing more enjoyable, there was nothing more satisfying than the very words of God. And it was the rabbi's desire to create in them an insatiable hunger for the word of God that would carry them on for the rest of their life. So before I move on, you already know where this is probably about to go. Every person should have received a honey stick in your seat. Go ahead and grab that. Now, here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and bite down on it. It's going to be one of the two ends. You'll just have to figure it out. And when you open it up, 
I just want you to close your eyes and I want you to eat this honey slowly. And keep your eyes closed just for a moment. When you taste it, keep your eyes closed for just a moment. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Okay, you can open your eyes. If you want to keep chewing on it, go for it. It's not going to bother me. Men and women, here's my question. Are the scriptures like honey on your tongue? Do you see God's word as sweet? Do you see God's word as desirable? Here's my concern for us today, church. If we were to take an honest evaluation about the things that we are consuming, about the things that we are delighting in, how are we really doing? Let me ask that again. If you and me were to take an honest evaluation about the things that we are consuming, the things that we are delighting in, how are we really doing? What is that thing that just keeps you drawing, keeps drawing you back again and again and again and again? In moments of silence, transition, boredom, what does your heart desire? And I'll be the first to confess, it's my phone, it's technology, it's ease, it's comfort, it's distraction. And as I read David's words in Psalm 19, it begs us to ask the question, who or what could compare with the very words of God. David saw God's word for what it really is. He saw that it's perfect and true and sure and trustworthy and right and pure. David saw the benefits of God's word, that it revives our souls, that it makes us wise, that it rejoices our hearts, that it enlightens our eyes. And here's the response that David gives in verse 11. He says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. A benefit of God's word is that it warns us of danger, right? He tells us what's going to bring life. God's word also tells us what's going to bring death. God's word clearly defines what is sinful, and so in that, we've received his warnings. He's a good father. He loves his children. He desires that all of us walk in joyful obedience to his word. That's why David says, in keeping them is great reward. John says later on, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
there's reward for walking in joyful obedience to God's word. For just a minute as I close, I'd like to share a few practical things to consider. If we want to delight in the sweetness of God's word, here's the first one. We've got to take an honest evaluation of your view of God's word. Take an honest evaluation of your view of God's word. Do you see it like cough medicine? It's nasty, but you know you need it, so you just gulp it down. Or like shredded wheat, it's nourishing, but it's kind of dry. Love to get something a little more exciting in my life. Or is it like berries and cream or honey? So sweet, so desirable, and you just keep coming back for more and more and more. Number two, if you are lacking desire, begin to pray for it. If you are lacking desire, begin to pray for it. Be honest with the Lord this morning. If you don't have the desire to pick up his word and engage it, just tell him what he already knows. Say, God, I haven't been interested in the least bit in your word. Just say, God, would you create within me a desire to know you, to see your word as sweet, to engage your word on an ongoing basis. And number three, don't engage God's word alone. I could talk about this one at length, um, the ways that I have personally seen the benefit of engaging God's word with other people. Yes, certainly in the context of community groups, but even outside of that. How beautiful and wonderful. Gary got to talk about this last week. How beneficial it is for us to read and to study the scriptures in the context of community. To begin to grapple with the text. To ask good questions of each other. How are you seeing Jesus in the scriptures? Where is his character revealed in this passage? What's the gospel connection here that shows us that abundant life is only found in Christ? These things happen in the context of community. I want to encourage you. I know it's already July, but if you have not started a Bible reading plan, just do it. Start halfway through the year somewhere. Engage in God's word. There's an infinite number of reading plans out there. Right now I'm doing one with uh, Seth and Garrett and Jono. We're just reading the same scriptures day after day after day. We're just sending each other a daily text saying, hey, here's what God showed me today in his word. What about you? And we just get to bounce off each other, mutually encourage one another in the word. I'll close with this. And I want you all to hear this. If you miss everything from this sermon, don't miss this. This is the most important thing that I'm about to say. The reason the scriptures are sweeter than honey and more to be desired than gold is because they point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus. And it all points to what he came to do. Jesus, the perfect one, came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. In every way, Jesus is perfect and trustworthy. In every way, Jesus is pure and true. And the scriptures tell us for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. 
It's the divine exchange. The sin that we deserve to pay for is death. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is eternal separation between us and a holy God. And what the scriptures tell us is that that is bad news. You and I cannot work our way to heaven. You and I cannot muster up faith on our own to save ourselves. We can't pretty ourselves up. We can't live a morally good life in our own strength. That's the bad news. Without Christ, you and I are lost and dead in our sins. But here's the good news. Because God loves us, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the debt that you and I deserve to pay, taking on the total weight of the wrath of his father for our sin. Jesus hung on a cross. And here in just a moment, we're going to take communion and we're going to be reminded that it was his body that was crushed. It was his body that was torn apart. And that piece of bread that we're going to consume here in just a moment reminds us of the weight of our sin that was paid for on the cross. And the juice that we're about to consume, it represents the blood of Jesus. Our sins have been atoned for and they've been forgiven. What could be more precious What could be more beautiful? What could be more sweet than the good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection? Amen? This morning, we're going to partake in what we call believer's communion. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake. Uh, You can either do that by yourself, with your family unit, with uh, someone around you. Uh, We're going to have two stations at the front. We're going to have two stations in the back as well. Maddie's just going to sing during this time um, as you partake in the elements. And then here in just a moment, she'll invite us uh, to worship alongside her. So whenever you're ready, you may partake.